Good morning. Please take God's word and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It is good to be back with you. Uh, you might not have noticed, but I've been away for a couple of weeks. It's all right if you didn't notice. Uh, Allison, Emma, and I spent uh, 12 days, I think it was, in, uh, in New Zealand, and we had a wonderful time. I was preaching at a couple of conferences and a couple of churches, uh, preaching on, on the Reformation. We also had the opportunity to renew some old friendships going way back and make some new ones. And we got to enjoy New Zealand. It's quite the place. Um, Snow-capped mountains, it's true. Rugged terrain, it's true. And uh, sheep absolutely everywhere. Sheep upon sheep upon sheep. But uh, a fascinating place, a beautiful place, uh, a needy place. It reminded me of many ways of Canada, culturally speaking, very secular, very post-Christian. And uh, the need for the gospel is great. The need for solid uh, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches is great. And it was wonderful to be there and fellowship with some believers anyway and get a, a slight feel for uh, what the Lord is doing in that land. I'll be praying for the bays. Many of you will know that name, Andre and Masha Bay. Those of you who have been here for some time and you can think of our connections with the church in Wetzlar, Germany. Andre was the pastor there when we began that relationship many years ago. He is now pastoring a church in Auckland, New Zealand, and so we were able to visit with them, and they certainly send uh, their greetings uh, to you. At the second conference I preached at, it was in the city of New Plymouth, um, and um, during the sessions, between the sessions, I was conversing with one, with one woman, and she wasn't from the host church. It was one church in particular hosting the conference. But this church had invited other churches in the city, surrounding uh, towns, to, to come attend the conference. And this woman had come along from her church. And she shared with me that she was the only one who had come from her church. Uh, despite the fact that it had been announced for many weeks, months in advance, and despite the fact that she had attempted to find at least someone who would accompany her to this conference, uh, no one else was interested. Um, she said, it wasn't just that no one else was interested. Most people I spoke to had absolutely no idea what the Reformation was. Just completely foreign to them. And of those who understood the word and had some basic understanding, at least, as to the nature of the Reformation, um, they thought spending a Saturday learning more about the Reformation would be a complete waste of time because, after all, why would we want to remember anything from the past? It begs an obvious question, though, doesn't it? And it is, it's a question that's worth asking. Why would we remember the Reformation? And as a church, why are we celebrating the Reformation this month? Um, I don't want to put every secular historian in the same category, um, but I'm going to. Uh, by and large, 
if we engage the secular historian and we ask them about the Reformation, they will simply explain the Reformation as an argument over semantics and as a manifestation of religious bigotry. That's all it was to the secular historian. Well, we could understand that. Uh, the secular historian has no appreciation for the work of God past or present, and that isn't too disconcerting. What is perhaps more disconcerting is that if we were to take a survey of evangelicals, we've moved from New Zealand back here to the States, and if we were to ask them, what is the Reformation? Why should we celebrate the Reformation? Why is the Reformation worth remembering? I think by and large, to a great extent, we would get blank stares. And for those who could articulate a response, uh, the answer would be negative. Uh, it's not worth celebrating. Why would we celebrate it? I'm increasingly convinced that the negative response arises from a misunderstanding of the nature of truth. Did you catch that? It was a bit wordy. A negative response, so that attitude. Why would, why, I don't care about the Reformation. Why would I care and why would I celebrate it? That response, that mindset flows from a misunderstanding of the nature of truth. In our day, for many, truth is unimportant. I'm speaking about professing evangelicals. Truth is unimportant. Sincerity is all that matters. As long as you are sincere, that is all that counts in the sight of God. And those who fall into this category champion tolerance over truth, sharing over preaching, uncertainty over certainty, conversation over confession, Discussion over doctrine, feeling over thinking, and therapy over theology. And for these people, uh, the Reformation is simply put quite irrelevant. And it is irrelevant because truth is unimportant. There are other evangelicals who would not necessarily view truth as unimportant, but they would certainly view it as unattainable. Oh, it's important. And it exists, but uh, we will never arrive at it. And so one leading evangelical, at least in some circles, penned the following a few years ago. I don't think we've got the gospel right. This is a professing evangelical. I don't think we've got the gospel right. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy. Truth is unattainable. And for those who believe, those professing evangelicals who believe that truth is unattainable, well, the Reformation is what? It's an embarrassment. That's what it is. And sadly, that is where much of evangelicalism is at today. Because truth is unimportant, the Reformation is irrelevant. Or because truth is unattainable, the Reformation is embarrassing. And so that negative response to the question, why should we celebrate the Reformation, I firmly believe stems from a misunderstanding of the nature of truth. Perhaps you've never done the count. I have. John's Gospel, the word truth mentioned 52 times, at least 52 times he uses the word truth. He tells us the Father 
is the source of the truth. John 8, 40. He tells us, the Son is the embodiment of the truth. John 14, verse 6. He tells us that the Spirit is the teacher of the truth. John 16, verse 13. He tells us that the Word, the Word of God, the Bible, is the truth. John 17, verse 17. You put it all together, you take those 52 references to truth, we're merely focusing on John's gospel account, and all of it, the conclusion is obvious. It is simply this. Truth is something that exists outside of us. Very difficult for the contemporary mind to understand because the contemporary mind, the contemporary man, thinks he determines truth and thinks truth is determined by his feelings. No, truth is something that exists outside of us. Truth is an objective reality. And truth has and is revealed by the triune God. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, that one of the marks of those who perish on the day of judgment is this. They refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth. Does the Reformation matter? It matters. Should we celebrate the Reformation, we should celebrate the Reformation. Why? Because it was a struggle for the truth. John MacArthur writes, the church today is quite possibly more susceptible to false teachers, doctrinal saboteurs, and spiritual terrorism than any other generation in church history. Biblical ignorance within the church may well be deeper and more widespread than at any other time since the Protestant Reformation. Does it matter? Yes, it matters, because it is a struggle for the truth. Is it worth celebrating? Yes, it is worth celebrating, because it was a rediscovery, reaffirmation of the truth, and in particular, the truth of the gospel. And so that's why we're celebrating the Reformation this month. We're celebrating it in very simple fashion as we, as we, make, way, as we make our way toward October 31st, 2017, marking the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We are focusing on five truths, what we call five solas. Why are they in Latin, you ask? It's a good question. Because at the time of the Reformation, Latin was the language of theological debate. It had been the language of theological debate ever since the early church, the Roman Empire, in which the language was what? Latin. And at the time of the Reformation, you had reformers speaking in Old Scots. You had reformers speaking in English, although we probably would struggle to understand it. We had reformers speaking in French, Spanish, Italian, German, and a host of other languages, but they all shared one common language. It was Latin. And so the debates and the discussions took place in the Latin language. And out of those debates, years later, really a couple of centuries later, 
these five truths crystallized as representing the main points, the main issues at stake when it came to the Reformation. And so three Sundays ago, we looked at the first, Scripture alone. Two Sundays ago, we considered the second, right? Grace alone. Last Sunday, faith alone. Today, Christ alone. Christ alone. In articulating this, in declaring solus Christus, only Christ or Christ alone, we are basically answering the, que the question posed by the Philippian jailer. Do you remember it? Acts chapter 16. Paul and some of his missionary companions, they're making their way through the city of Philippi. They're preaching the gospel. There is this young girl who is demon-possessed, and she's being used for the purposes of divination. And so Paul casts the demon out of this young girl. Her owner, she's a slave girl, they get upset because they've lost what was a lucrative enterprise. They haul Paul and the others, I think it was Silas, before the local authorities. They're cast into prison. Around midnight, they are praying and they're singing. There's a great earthquake. The entire prison cell is shook. Their bonds are loosed. They're free of their chains. The Philippian jailer realizes what has happened. He's about to kill himself because he knows the authorities will take his life until he discovers what? That the prisoners are all still there. And there sits the Apostle Paul, and the Philippian jailer poses that all-important question. The question of questions. What must I do to be saved? That's the question. What? What must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer comes from deep within the prison cell clear and true and echoes through the corridors of time down to the present. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's solus Christus. That's all the reformers were saying. Solus Christus, what must I do to be saved? Oh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, that is not what the Roman Catholic Church was saying. By the end of the 15th century, that is most certainly not what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. The Roman Catholic Church was orthodox when it came to the person, the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. They clearly affirmed the Nicene Creed, as do we. They clearly affirmed the Chalcedon definition, as do we. When it comes to the nature of Christ, they were orthodox. But when it came to the work of of Christ. Hmm. A different matter entirely. Why? Because they had a different answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Their answer was what? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And. And. It's an all-important word, my friend. It wasn't solus Christus. It was believe in the Lord Jesus and, yes, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you must perform works. You see, you need to understand that when you believed in the Lord Jesus, okay, you became one with him, and you are now a partaker of God's grace. 
But now in that new condition, you are performing works. You are performing works of righteousness. And on that day yet future, it will be on the basis of your personal righteousness. Not the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be on the basis of your accumulated personal righteousness that God will pass that sentence justified. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and perform good works. What must I do to be saved? Yes, believe in the Lord Jesus and devote yourself to all the sacraments. Seven sacraments of the church Two sacraments of utmost importance. You must be baptized. Why? Because the fount of baptism washes away your sin. It is baptismal regeneration. And so when you were baptized as an infant, original sin is washed away. And from that moment, you become what? A blank slate. You will continue to sin. And therefore, to obtain and secure continual ongoing forgiveness, what must you do? You must celebrate the Mass. Because you see, at the Mass, the Lord Jesus is offered up and sacrificed yet again. And so the fount of baptism, yes, there your sin, original sin is washed away. Oh, but over the course of your life, the celebration of the Mass will secure ongoing forgiveness. So what must I do to be saved? Oh, yes, believe on the Lord Jesus and perform works. And make sure you devote yourself to the sacraments. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you want to get as close to relics as you possibly can. There are hundreds of thousands of relics from the west of Europe to the east of Europe. Oh, there are all the manner of wonderful relics. You have, we have pieces of the manger in which the Lord Jesus was laid by his mother Mary. We have pieces of wood from the very cross upon which the Lord Jesus was crucified. We have nails, the nails, the very nails. I know they now number in the thousands, but we have them. We have nails that held the Lord Jesus to the cross. Oh, we have vials of his blood that was collected as he hung upon the cross. We have vials of milk from the very breast of the Virgin Mary herself. Oh, we have soot from the furnace in which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were burned. We have the staff of Moses. We have this, we have that, we have this. Oh, and it gets even better. We have the bones from Thomas and from Anna and from other saints. And you see, all of these relics have accumulated holiness. Get close to these relics. Because if you can get close to these relics, they will in turn radiate their holiness to you. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church never denied it. And you must perform good works. You must devote yourself to the sacraments. And you must get as close to the relics as you possibly can. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and venerate the saints. Oh, venerate the saints. We have hundreds of them. Oh, forget hundreds of them. We have thousands of them. Oh, these saints. They lived lives that you and I, we, we could never hope to live. They, I mean, they were just superhuman. They were like superman, superwoman, spiritually speaking. And they accumulated so much holiness that they went straight to heaven. You, my friend, you're not going straight to heaven. There's a place called purgatory waiting for you, I guarantee it. But they went straight to heaven. 
And they had more than enough holiness to get them into heaven. And that holiness that was left over has been collected up into this great treasure, treasure chest of merit that sits there in heaven. And the church, the Pope in particular, has the authority to unlock that lock that holds that treasure chest together. And he alone has the authority to dispense that extra merit to others if you will pay what? Your penitential fines. Money. That's all we ask. What must I do to be saved? Oh, yes, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you must perform good works. You must devote yourself to the sacraments of the church. You must get yourself as close as you possibly can to the relics. And you must venerate the saints looking to their treasury of merit that the church will transfer to you in order to lessen the amount of time that you will spend in purgatory atoning for your actual sin. Oh, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you better start looking to Mary. Believe in the Lord Jesus, but even more importantly, look to Mary. Oh, look to Mary. She's the second Eve, just as Christ is the second Adam. And so just as Adam is the head of men in the fall, Christ is the head of men in redemption. So too, Eve was the head of women in the fall, and Mary is the head of? Women, in redemption, she is therefore what? The co-redeemer with the Lord Jesus Christ. And just at the moment he hung upon Calvary's cross, a sword, figuratively speaking, pierced her side. And it is the two working in cooperation by which they have jointly secured your redemption. Oh, look to Mary. She's the spiritual mother of all Christians. She is the symbol of the church. She is the spouse of Christ. She is the mother of God. She is the mediator of all grace. She is the object of adoration with countless shrines and images and festivals and processions in her honor. If you want the Lord Jesus to listen to you, pray to Mary after all. Just remember the wedding feast in Cana. Do you remember that when the wine ran out, the request was not made directly to the Lord Jesus. It came to Mary. And it was Mary who then mediated between the people and the Lord Jesus, whereby in response to Mary, he performed that miracle. If you want him to do something for you, you don't come to him. Come to Mary. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And make sure you perform good works. Make sure you devote yourself to the sacraments of the church. Make sure you live as close as you possibly can to the relics, regularly kissing them. Make sure you are venerating the saints and you are giving your donations. You are giving your penitential fines. Make sure you are praying, venerating, and adoring Mary. Oh, what must I do to be saved? One more. Yes, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you better believe in the Pope. Oh, you better believe in the Pope. Pope Innocent III, 12th century. His words, It is altogether necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the Roman pontiff. There is no salvation if you are not subject to the Pope at Rome. One of his followers, Benefice VIII, next century, 
outside of Rome, there is neither salvation nor remission of sins. What must I do to be saved? Oh, they'd come a long way from Paul's answer, hadn't they? They had traveled a long way from that simple cry in the jail at Philippi, the jailer asking Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul making it most clear, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This was the answer that the Roman Catholic Church was giving by the end of the 15th century, and it necessitated what? The Reformation. The Reformation. So Ulrich Zwingli in the Swiss city-states declared, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. John Calvin proclaimed, Our whole salvation is found in Christ alone. Let us drink our fill of this fountain, from this fountain, and from none other. Amandus Polanus affirmed, the only mediator is our Lord Jesus Christ, who only doth reconcile us to his Father by his satisfaction and merit. Let me go back to where we began. Is the Reformation worth celebrating? Is the Reformation worth remembering? It most certainly is because it was a struggle for the truth of the gospel. Not only is it worth celebrating how the reformers championed the truth of Scripture as they proclaimed the good news of salvation, not only is it worth celebrating, but it is so necessary that we declare this doctrine clearly, unapologetically in our day. Why? Here's why. Most evangelicals don't believe it. Most, yes, I did say that, most professing evangelicals in this country do not believe in solus Christus. They don't. Here are the statistics. 90% of Americans believe in God. All right? We probably all heard that one. 60% of those who believe in God believe, quotation, it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow. Because all faiths teach similar lessons about life. Almost 50% of professing evangelicals agree. They agree. Over 60% of surveyed professing evangelicals are comfortable with the following statement. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. Why should we celebrate the Reformation? To celebrate the rediscovery of the truth of the gospel. Why should we be so adamant in our proclamation of those truths today? Because they are the very thing that much of the professing church must here in our day. That justification is by grace alone, through faith 
alone, in Christ alone. As the Reformers articulated this and explained it and expounded on it and defended it, they gravitated to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where we read the following. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. As they explained this verse, they emphasized, look, look clearly what Paul is arguing here. There is but one true living God. We can understand that. There he is. We can understand humanity. Here we are. We are aware of our sinfulness. And so because we have on the one hand a holy, a, a righteous God and his requirement, what he requires of us, perfect obedience. We have this God on the one hand. And here we are on the other hand. Those who have disobeyed him in innumerable ways. This relationship which is broken. It is broken. It requires a mediator. It requires someone to step in between the two parties in order to effect and bring about what? Reconciliation. And the Reformers made it clear, as the Apostle Paul makes it clear, that there is but one mediator. There is but one individual who fulfills that role, working between God on the one hand, the fallen sinner on the other hand. It is the man Christ Jesus. Now, as they explain this, John Calvin is very clear on this. He is the most accessible because his writings are available in English. Many of the other reformers who were just as important and just as eloquent, their writings are all still in Latin, making them not so accessible. But they all are saying the same thing, that as we explain and understand this role of mediator, that the Lord Jesus Christ assumes between God and man, we need to understand it in terms of three offices. And here they go beyond 1 Timothy 2.5 to the entire testimony of Scripture. And they say, look, this mediator, this one mediator between God and man fulfills three offices or three roles. The first role is this. He is a prophet. He's a prophet. Just as the Old Testament foretold that a greater prophet than Moses would arise, this prophet has come. He is the Lord Jesus. What does a prophet do? A prophet reveals truth. Why do we need this prophet? We need this prophet because we are blinded by our sin. We live in absolute perpetual spiritual darkness when it comes to divine truth and divine reality. The carnal man, the man outside of the Lord Jesus, does not understand anything concerning spiritual reality and spiritual truth. He is groping around in the darkness, and he requires a prophet to act as a mediator to reveal God to man. And so the Lord Jesus declares in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Oh, we need a prophet. We need this mediator to function as a prophet. We need him to reveal God to us 
through the word. And we need him to give us spiritual understanding to open our eyes, to remove our blindness so that we can understand it. But there's a second function. It is this. We need a priest. And Christ is this priest. Just as a prophet reveals, what does a priest do? He reconciles. And just as we needed a greater prophet than Moses, we needed a greater priest than Aaron. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that priest who now reconciles. And he reconciles how? We read in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because you see, not only were we blinded by sin, therefore standing in need of a prophet, we were condemned on account of our sin, therefore standing in need of a priest, someone to atone for our sin, someone to pay the penalty for our sin, someone to stand in the gap and reconcile me, a sinner, an individual who by nature is hostile toward God, that he would reconcile me to God, thereby making peace. And our priest has done that through the blood of his cross. But there's a third way in which we must understand his role as mediator. Not only is he the prophet who reveals, not only is he the priest who reconciles, he is the king who rules. And so not only is he a greater prophet than Moses foretold of in the Old Testament, not only is he a greater priest than Aaron, foretold of in the Old Testament. He is a greater king than David, foretold of in the Old Testament. Because you see, yes, I'm blinded by sin, therefore stand in need of a prophet to reveal truth to me and open my eyes. Yes, you see, I'm condemned on account of my sin, therefore I need a priest to reconcile me to God by paying the penalty for my sin. But so too, I am enslaved by my sin. And I need a king to break the power of sin in my heart. I need a king, Christ himself, who claimed all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when I believe in the Lord Jesus, yes, I am made one with him in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And the penalty for my sin is paid in full. But it's more than that. I am now made one with him whereby his crucifixion and his resurrection become realities in my life. And I am no longer enslaved to sin because a king now rules in my life. That is how the Reformers understood 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there is one mediator who is the promised prophet who reveals, the promised priest who reconciles, and the promised king who rules between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. As Amandus Polanus put it, there is but one mediator, Christ. But one sacrifice for sins, Christ. But one righteousness and redemption of the world, Christ. But one manner for all the ages of the world to obtain salvation, namely, by faith 
in Christ. That was and is the doctrine of solus Christus. What must I do to be saved? I'm a sinner. I am all too conscious of my sinfulness before a holy God. What must I do to be saved? I am fully aware that there is a real place called hell. What must I do to be saved? I know I am going to stand before God on that judgment day and my entire life and every thought and every feeling will be laid bare and it will be an embarrassment that I cannot even begin to perceive. What must I do to be saved? I get it. I have offended God. And by nature, I am a hater of God and a lover of self. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He alone is the one who can reveal God to you as the prophet. He alone is the one who can reconcile you to God as the priest. And he alone is the one who can break the power of sin in your heart because he alone is the king. Oh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I was speaking with a young woman back across the ocean in New Zealand, again during one of the, between the sessions of this conference. A friend had invited her to attend. She was a university student. She was a little skeptical. She was very skeptical. She was skeptical when it comes to Scripture and what she perceived to be a book full of errors. I asked her for an example. She couldn't give one. And she was very susceptible when it came to this claim of solus Christus. Are you telling me that you can't be saved apart from the Lord Jesus? Yes, that is what I am telling you. You cannot be saved apart from the Lord Jesus. There is one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man. Christ Jesus. And the reformers articulated this. They defended it against the Roman Catholic Church as the church was answering that question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and... And the reformers were responding, no, believe in the Lord Jesus sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. We come to Him through faith. We come to him as that old hymn declares, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We look away from ourselves and we grab hold of the Lord Jesus and we rest, yes, in his atoning sacrifice whereby he paid the penalty for our sin in full and we rest in his infinite merit. We look away from our prayings we look away from our doings. Oh, please, friend, look away from your feelings. And you look to the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus alone. And we fix our gaze upon his death, upon his agony, upon his suffering, upon his merit, upon his righteousness, upon his resurrection, and upon his intercession. 
and we rest peacefully and joyfully and assuredly in this great, glorious truth. Christ and Christ alone. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for its clarity, the clarity with which it comes when accompanied by the Spirit of God who removes the darkness and that all-pervasive blindness, softening the heart and causing your word to penetrate deep within. And we thank you for this reminder this day of the truth of the gospel and what it means to find salvation, peace of conscience, and assurance of forgiveness in Christ alone. We pray for your children here right now in your presence, that they might be greatly comforted and encouraged by this doctrine, that they might lay hold of it each and every day, that it might fuel them in their service, in their devotion, that it might strengthen their love for you. And for those unbelievers in our presence, Lord, you know who they are. We pray that you would cause them to look at themselves, take stock, evaluate, understand who and what they are in your presence. And then, our Father, we pray that you would enable them to look away from themselves and to reach out and to receive the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and in him discover the fount, an everlasting and inexhaustible fount of love in you. As we pray for the furtherance of your kingdom among us, as we pray for the glory of your name, This we pray in Christ's matchless and worthy name. Amen.